0: Who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner.
1: Welcome YouTube and Stanford communities to the Stanford Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar. I am Ravi Balani, a lecturer in the Management, Science, and Engineering Department at Stanford and the Director of Alchemist and Accelerator for Enterprise Startups. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar is brought to you by BASIS the Business Association of Stanford Entrepreneurial Students, and STVP, the Entrepreneurship Center in the School of Engineering at Stanford. Today, I am thrilled to be welcoming to ETL, James Reinhart. James is the CEO and co-founder of ThreadUp, a $2 billion publicly traded company that is one of the world's largest online resale platforms. ThreadUp designed a digital resale experience that aims to take the work and risk out of thrift in an effort to make used clothes the new normal and create a more sustainable future for fashion. James is also another phenomenal founder with liberal arts roots. Uh, James studied history at Boston College, and like Reed Hoffman and many others, he studied philosophy, political philosophy at Oxford, and then spent seven years dedicated to secondary school education. He was a high school teacher, a communications director, he co-founded a network of the top charter schools, and he also was instrumental in developing one of the nation's premier public schools, Pacific Collegiate School. He then graduated with joint degrees from Harvard, from Harvard Business School and Harvard Kennedy School, where he earned master's degrees in public policy and business. So with that, please welcome James. James, welcome. Thanks for having me, Rodney. Good to be here. Great to have you. Great to have you. Um, I'd love to start off with the origin story of Threat, because there's so much catnip here, which is so I think fascinating. One of which is if you know, if I was a life cartographer and I'm tracking your life, um, and this is I think a true inspiration for many of the Stanford students, your life screams out education, politics, philosophy, and policy, and then suddenly you go to being the founder of one of the largest online reseller platforms for secondhand clothes. Um, so can you talk us through that? Um, how did you start ThreadUp, and was there a connection between the past and that venture? Um, or what was the inspiration behind it?
0: Ravi, I think like I need to be on a couch. It's like a therapy. <laughs> no, how, how did we get here? Um, well, it's great to be with all of you. Um, and, um, yeah, i mean the origin story i mean there's a few threads in there no no pun intended um you know i think growing up um i was always a guy who, who um, had a point of view on fashion you know and wanted to have unique things and and express my individuality with you know with the clothes that i wore and, and i think this was probably like a dormant you know latent part of, of my personality and um and you know and then as you as you said I, I did a bunch of other things and then i was in business school um you know that school that shall not be named uh, on this call, and um, and and when I got there, I, I didn't have any money, and so one of the days uh, I went and I tried to sell like some bags of clothing, you know, at the local consignment store, and they didn't take them, you know, and it was like I remember vividly, it was like a J. Crew cashmere sweater and a Brooks Brothers coat, um, and uh, they said, you know, these things don't have any value, and I thought, man, this I find that hard to believe that this cashmere sweater is worth zero. You know, and I think the, the insight that I had was like, it's, it's worth zero to me, but in some other context, it could be worth $20 or $25. And so what I saw at that moment in time was a real market failure. And, um, and you know, in the business school parlance, I, I thought these were mispriced assets, right? In my closet, they were zero in somebody else's closet, they'd be worth, you know, worth more. And that is really what kicked off, you know, the story. I think my whole life I had been you know, tinkering with businesses, you know, I, you know, the joke, like I had a lawn mowing business, right? And then I did. Um, and, um, and so I think there was an entrepreneurial spirit in me. And I think I found the right idea, um, and then got really inspired to, to, to pursue that. So that's a little bit of how I think this all came together.
1: No, that's terrific. So you were always entrepreneurial you were yep. always thinking about things and you just happened to this was the moment in your life when things things con- converged yep. you know th- james on this idea of market failure there's two schools of thought i find when it comes to starting companies some believe that startups attack markets there's a set market size you're going to go and take a certain share of that market and there's another school of thought that startups create markets yep. that founders are more like missionaries that are actually going and evangelizing and creating movements that you're more of a movement maker as a founder versus a market attacker. Um, if do you subscribe to one of those, and if so, which one, and and any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I, I think at the, t- at the you know, I think, to be really like intellectually honest, I think at the founding moment it was a market failure. Uh, I was like, man, this this there's something wrong, right? And my whole life, I think I was sort of you know uh, obsessed with with markets and market inefficiencies. And so I think, you know, the business got started with a market failure approach, and I think what we learned um, in the pivots, right, and we'll probably talk about some of those, right, in the pivots, we realized that we could actually massively expand, you know, the TAM uh, by the sets of activities that we undertook. And so um, not not the hedge, but I, I don't think it was either or, I think it was a sequence where we understood a market failure, which we tried to solve. Um, and then we then we engaged in sort of rapidly expanding, you know the, the market as it is today. So
1: and can you take us through what was the first thing you did after you had that insight? You know, when you had this instinctive knowing that something was wrong here, that there should this is a misplaced mispriced asset, yeah. um, you ended up building a marketplace business. Marketplace businesses are notoriously the most valuable. But also the most difficult businesses to create because you have a chicken and egg problem in the beginning you need the suppliers to get the buyers you need the buyers to get the suppliers so when you had this that after you had that insight what was the first thing that you did to with with a business
0: you know i um i did a bunch of primary research you know with, with with friends and family and i would ask them a series of questions um i would say you know what percent of the clothes in your closet uh do you wear and they and most people said nah, not and I wear a third and a half, and I said hmm. And for the ones that you don't wear, what will you do with it? And consistently, everybody said nah, eventually I'll just give them away. And then I asked a and I developed a third question to that after a couple of weeks. I said well, I mean, how's that going to make you feel? And they said nah, I don't know, just what you do. And um, you know, and so I I, I pulled together enough data points where I was like interesting, right? Underutilized part of the closet. People are going to eventually give it away, and they're going to feel not great about it. Like, is there an opportunity to improve every part, you know, of that experience? And um, and so when I got started, you know, when ThredUP started, we we were really focused on peer to peer. And I remember like the original pitch slides, right? It was all about building a better version of eBay. You know, how do we reduce the friction that was involved, you know, in eBay? Um, and uh, you know, so that was sort of all the research that we did. And, you know, I think the business got started as peer-to-peer and we quickly learned, you know, how challenging uh, that marketplace dynamic is because you're constantly relying on sellers. And so I think that's when we started to iterate on what's the right way to access supply. Um, and that's sort of where we landed on the business, you know, as it is today. Um, but, it, but, but it was very much primary research at the beginning. And then the massive unlock, I credit to a professor of mine at HBS, who, uh, when I was running the small pilot, trying to figure out whether there was a there there, you know, I had a few hundred customers, you know, friends and family, people like on Facebook and so forth, um, and I thought that like I had I had found something that made sense, right? Classic sort of product market fit stuff, and I went to one of my professors and, and he said, well, how many users do you have using this thing? And I was like, I think I really nailed it. I mean, I think we we got something that like really gonna kind of scale. And he was like, "Well, do you have like 10,000 people using it?" I was like, "You know, like I have like 300." He's like, "You know, you'll get product market fit when you get to 10,000. Then like you'll know that there's a there there." And um, I remember walking out of his office and being like, "Ah, you know." But he was right, right. And um, I often like share that advice now with other entrepreneurs. Like, if you can't get 10,000 people to use it on the internet these days, like you don't have a thing.
1: So that's your golden metric is 10,000.
0: I mean, that's like, I think that's as good a metric. I mean, yeah, as any for like out of the gate, you know, for, for consumer, if you can't get 10,000 people, um, to love it, you're not going to get 10 million.
1: But was that the moment for you? I mean, can you tell us when there was, when you had the moment that you knew this was going to be a big business? When did that occur?
0: (laughs) Um, I think it was when we opened. So, you know, 2011 we were tinkering with peer getting out of the peer-to-peer business 2012 is when we unlocked what we do today which is this managed managed marketplace where we manage all the logistics to really unlock supply you know to your previous question right we were really unlocking a new market uh, by doing all the work for people um and i think you know we, we built our first distribution center and it wasn't really until about 2014 um, where I was starting to see the organic supply, uh, uh, come into the market at like very high rates where I started to get conviction that like we had really struck a nerve on the supply side. Uh, people were sending us lots of great clothing for free and, um, and we were able to resell it at good margins. And so that's kind of when I knew we were onto something, um, you know, and then I think it took another year or two for me to really appreciate that, you know, the company could be worth $10 billion a day.
1: But, but the, So that moment that you knew it was when there was an organic inflow of supply yeah. where you, were, you weren't soliciting it. People were just coming to you um, yeah. with, with, with activities. And you know, we had Justin Kahn on two weeks ago, the co-founder of Twitch, and he talks about this moment yes. when you know that the boulder is just rolling down the hill and yeah. it's not that you're pushing it, it's just you, you're chasing it. That, yeah. that was that. And was there, can you quantify that? Was there a percentage that you saw at that moment when you were like, oh, this is significant?
0: i just um you know people talk about viral coefficients right and um and you know I, at that time in, in 2013 2014 like our viral coefficient on our the supply part of our business was above one right like people would do it and you know and and it be, it's become such a problem now that we actually now have so much supply that the challenge in our business is we have struck such a nerve on the organic clean outside that we we're, we're drowning you know so to speak in, in lots of product um And so I think it's when, like, we weren't doing anything and we were just bags were just coming in the door, right? And, like, um, and people were sending us a bag and then saying, can you send me 10? And I think that really, you know, I mean, and and then I'll go a step further is, and maybe Justin talked about this in his experience, is even when people would have, like, a non-optimal experience, they would want to do it again. (laughs) Right. Yeah. You're like and so you really know you're solving a problem when people are like, it took too long to process. You didn't pay me very much. Man, I'd love to do it again. Can you send me another <laughs> one? Right. And then you kind of know, right? I mean, uh, that you're on, that you have product market
1: fit. And just to be clear, that was how many years after you founded it? Oh, uh,
0: I didn't really feel that probably until yeah, 2013,
1: 2014. So four years. Four years after you founded it, I, I think one of the hallmarks of being an entrepreneur is is that the job changes. Or a founder yeah. is that the job changes so much um, as the and and sometimes the very skills that allowed your success in one phase are going to be orthogonal to what's required in the next phase. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the core decisions are whether or not you stay the course or give yeah. up. Um, and so I'd like to dive deep into that because you know even before you hit to that point where you knew for sure that this was going to succeed. Um, you had 27 investors, I understand, that you pitched that said this was a failure. Yeah. And yet, and at that point, you said, no, I still think it's. I'm going to persist at that. Um, can you walk us through the fundraising process? Um, how many people said no to you? And how you made the decision to say, my internal conviction should trump their external opinion? Yeah. And when do you decide to listen to external feedback versus your own internal gut? And when do you decide to listen to your gut? versus external feedback
0: yeah I mean I think um I you know there's I don't know who who's who's famous for saying this so I just I, I steal it but like this notion that like you have to be contrarian to start big businesses and you have to be right um and and I took a lot of com- I took a lot of um, I got increasing amounts of confidence when people are like this seems way too hard and I was like yeah 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 it's really, really, really hard. But man, if we get it right, it's gonna become massive and it's gonna be really hard for people to compete with us. And so I was, you know, because I was in business school, remember when we started the business, I was sort of obsessed with these like fundamental frameworks around competitive advantage and like how you build like disruptive businesses. Like I took, you know, I I had Clay Christensen as a professor, right? I was like obsessed with like how he thought about the world and like, um, and so I was, I was Clay, Clay for lot. the students,
1: Clay's the, the author of The Innovator's Dilemma, um, which is a classic work on building disruptive companies from the bottoms up.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah, just Sorry. passed away, I think, a couple of years ago. But, but incredible, man. And, um, and so uh, I think I just believe that like I was, stru- I was building something that was structurally correct um, and that I just needed to, to raise enough money to keep going to prove to people that I was going to be right on the other side and and so um to answer your question about the fundraising process like yeah it was really hard because you're trying to convince you know a bunch of you know generally speaking like wealthy white people you wealthy white men that you're um you're going to sell used clothes on the internet (laughs) um and you know that's not necessarily like investor product fit (laughs) Uh, and so, you know, I think one of the things that I learned in that process was I, you know, at the time we were more focused on the kids, on kids business, because kids was like a natural replacement cycle. Kids grow. You know, our first, our first tagline was clothes Don't grow kids do. (laughs) Um, and so what I realized in that process is I needed to find a really sharp investor that also happened to be female and have kids and like appreciate like what this is like in the life of a, of a normal person, and so when I found Patricia and Nakash, who um, is at Trinity Ventures, um, and uh, and I know uh, teaches a class at Stanford, you know, coincidentally, um, I think she really like she got it, you know, and like our conversation, you know, as you know was, she was like, hey, I really get this. Tell me how you can make money, and that's a very different conversation than I don't even know how this works. Right. And, um, and so I think that was the difference in the fundraise process. And um, I give Patricia a lot of credit uh, for seeing it and, and getting it and, and, and getting it right.
1: Um, uh, the, the I got a question about the, repeating the name of the book. The book right. is The Innovator's Dilemma. It's a classic entrepreneurship book. Um, uh, Clayton Christensen is an icon. Um, students, you should check it out. Um, but I want to just underscore what James was saying about fundraising. You know, I oftentimes tell my students that it's uh, fundraising is not so much about convincing investors that you're right, but finding the investor that's looking for you and doesn't yes. know that you exist yeah. and, um, yeah. and, and going after 100%. that. And how many investors said no before Patricia said yes?
0: Um, I think I'm on record as it being 27, but I think that number's low. I mean, yeah. um, you know, and I probably like, you know, and then through my whole journey up until being a public company where investors come and go, right, um, you know, it's probably a hundred investors. You know, even when the company was having some modest success, who like just like didn't really believe, um, and so uh, yeah, it's 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 challenging out there. Okay,
1: and I also want to sort of go down a path. So that was an example of where you stuck to your conviction because you had a belief that you knew to be true, and you listened to your internal conviction over these external views. Yeah. Um, I'd love to also explore a situation where you actually pivoted or changed, mm-hmm. where you had some internal belief and you decided to change. Um, uh, perhaps that was the shift from the peer-to-peer marketplace. But I feel like we oftentimes talk about the victories. And yeah. we, we live in a tech crunch world where everything is glossed over. Um, but we don't talk about the struggles. And I would just want to invite you to share any struggle or struggles that you can share that you have gone through in the journey and how you got through them.
0: Yeah. but I, mean, I think your, your point about like, you know, when, when, when do you change course and, and pivot? Um, I think it's an important one. So I think we went through a number of them. Right. And so I think when we, when we started out just to paint the picture, we started out peer to peer focused on men's. So think like business model peer to peer category men's. And then I said, then, then our first pivot was, well, the men's thing, that's stupid. That's not going to work. But peer to peer, there might be something there. So we pivoted to kids. And so we had peer-to-peer kids, right? And that took like a year. And how did you know that
1: that men's thing wouldn't work? Did you test it? Uh, yeah, I mean, that you... was the
0: two to 300 yeah. people that I had. Okay. But I could never get to 400 or 500. And, and you know when you have a product that's not going to work, when people say, I don't think I'll use it, but I'm sure my, I think my friend will use it, Yeah. right? That's like, you know, the death knell. Um, people don't want to tell you your idea is no good. So they say it's not for them, but maybe for somebody else. And I think I heard that enough to be like, yeah. But then in that process, I heard a lot of people say, um, "Hey, I really wouldn't use it for myself, but I would use it for my kids." Um, you know, they are parents and they understood kids are growing. And so, so we were we, we sort of went with some of the customer feedback. And so we went from peer to peer, and then we added kids, and and then kids, you know, who who shops for kids but parents, and we ruled out men. So that meant kids and moms. Right, and so we had peer to peer kids and moms, and then we realized that like kids and moms was right, but peer to peer was wrong. And so the next version, and that was in like 2011, was kids, moms, and then managed marketplace. And it was at that moment where we sort of got the two together um, that uh, that we saw acceleration. Uh, but it was like not without um, not without controversy. I remember going to a board meeting. Where things weren't going well, and um, and, and when we were, we, had, we were in the kids' peer to peer business, and I was like, and eh, we're gonna launch women's, and I remember the board being like, What are we doing? right? Um, and you know, but we were constantly navigating for the largest market, you know, with the right kind of um uh, business model, um, and uh, those were very challenging times, you know.
1: And in those challenging times, how do you overcome resistance? So when the board is Shaking their heads, what do you do?
0: Um, you know, I think that you have to find that balance of you know your, your 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 sort of base instincts around what you believe about the world, and then you have to follow some of the data. Um, but you know, the problem, the joke, right? The problem with the data is all is it's all about the past, right? It, the data is not a roadmap for the future, and so you know, I, I was sort of obsessed with like, where do I believe the consumer is going? And, um, you know, at, at that time, I just really believed there was going to be this, um, you know, sustainability mindset, you know, of how the consumer was moving. Um, and, and I had a bunch of, you know, you know data that said, like, hey, if you can get the supply out there. You can get the supply. Um, there's a there there in this market. And so then it was ultimately, like, how do we drive the business to access that supply? And, you know, I think that's why when you say, when did I know? it would work, right, it was a year from there where we really unlocked supply in a powerful way. Okay.
1: And I'd love to sort of talk about this notion of sustainability and that conviction that you had around that and how that interplays with, you know, there's this narrative of iterating towards victory. You know, you're moving from men to kids to women. And then there's this enduring mission or the sense of purpose around sustainability. Can you talk a little bit more about ThreadUp's mission how how do you define the mission? How central is sustainability to the mission or vision of the company? And yeah. when did you when did you set the mission? Um yeah, and, and, and how did you make sure that you kept the company's values as you were going through these iterations and scaling?
0: Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. I, I think in the early days, you know, we had a set of values, but we didn't really have a mission. Um it took it took until I think probably 2012, 2013, so three years before we really codified hey what's the mission of this business and it's because i think in the early days it you know as i said it was it was sort of like hey how, are we solving this market failure piece right and like bringing you know bringing um you know great children's clothes to parents but we hadn't really locked on to like you know what was really going to drive you know all the organizing activities and so um i think i think it was like 2012 where we like sat down and like yeah, what is the mission and and i think that's where we ended up on you know our mission to inspire a new generation of consumers to think secondhand first and embedded in that right was um was all sorts of things around you know new generation right it was like hey we're thinking about the we're thinking about where people are going to be uh not where the world is uh today um think secondhand first became like a real big mantra for us because we knew if we weren't ultimately going to get everybody to have 100% of the clothes in their closet be secondhand, right, that doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. But what we could change the mindset where you thought like, hey, maybe if you do need something new, maybe you should start with Reddit. We often use that phrase, like, we want you to at least start here. You may end up shopping and buying it new, but we want to put ourselves in a position to have you start there. Um, and then the mission, you know, we kept like testing it and, um, you know, time people were like, Hey, I think we should evolve the mission. And, um, you know, I've sort of told people like, no, I, th- I think this is the mission we should stay true to it. Um, and, um, you know, until it no longer until it's until it's too, until it constrains us. Um, it feels like the right journey to be on. Um, and then your point about sustainability, I think, um, I think it was something we believed uh, was going to matter in the future, you know, in the early days of the company. Um, but what I kept reminding the team of and reminding myself of is that, you know, sustainability is, is not the end goal, right? Like what we wanted to do is build a great business um, that could create a sustainable outcome. And um, and I remember it was somebody explaining to me that like, you know, it, it it's um. We were using the example of like Seventh Generation, which was like that, like sustainable cleaning wipes, uh, and they did like home products. And uh, we were talking about how like the problem that Seventh Generation had is that it was so much more expensive. And so people want to be sustainable, but they don't want to be sustainable by paying a lot more. And one of the things that really like for me that I drove in everybody is like you can be sustainable and and pay less. That's the magic of shopping secondhand. Um, and I think mean, that's what's really driven us.
1: That is great. Um, and 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 so that crystallized um, after three years, and it sounds like it got really, really well honed. At the beginning, though, um, it sounds like there wasn't a mission, but you had values. Yep. How important was it to have values at the beginning? Um, and is that something that you recommend to founders? And how did that come into
0: play? I think that the values in the, in the very early years are like the values of your founders, and, and, and we didn't write them down, it was just who we were, right? And so um, it, it took a few years for us. It probably came after the mission <laughs> statement that we sat down and wrote like, what are the values? And, it, and, and that process came from hiring. All of a sudden you were hiring that next layer of people where um, you know I wasn't interacting with them every day, Chris, my co-founder wasn't interacting with them every day. And so the values didn't ooze through the company they actually need to be written down and shared and talked about. And so, um, so the, you'll, you'll appreciate like the value story. So when we, when we decided to write the values, I was like, great, let's do, let's codify the values. And so we had a committee, right? People, we brought people together, ba, 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 we, you know, we, we came up with the values, um, PowerPoint, you know, and I get the values and I was like, these aren't my values. Like the, this, this, these are the values of some amorphous company on the internet like did you guys download these um and I was like we're not doing these and I went home and and on the weekend just I just wrote them like like gut like from the gut like what the values were and um that became that became the values for like 7 years of the company and it was just in my own my own words you know why you know how I wanted to run the company and um and yeah that's kind of where we are today
1: and were they Values that some people would disagree with, or were they sort of mom and apple pie that were generically good virtues?
0: They were generically good virtues, but they but they had um they had like twists on them around like why um you know why we wanted them to be, why I wanted them to be what they were, right? And like for example, one of them was um was influence outcomes, mm-hmm. right? Which on its face, like, yeah, influence outcomes. But like I'm obsessed with this notion that like it's all about the outputs. It's not about the inputs. And so like uh, everything in the, the threat of business is like, I wanna know about what the output is. I don't wanna, I don't care that it took 10 hours, right? If, if the output is not good, that doesn't matter. If it took 10 minutes and the output's amazing, that's great. And it goes back to my teaching career. I remember when I was a first year teacher, there was this wise old woman, Sharon Cadwallader, uh, God bless her, she, she was like 70 years old. And I walked into the teaching lounge, as a first year teacher, And I was like, man, I don't know what I'm going to teach today. And she was like, James, it's not what you're going to teach. It's what are the students going to learn today? And it has always stuck with me, right? Because there's an inputs way of thinking about the world and there's an outputs way of thinking about the world. And so that sharing of all our story is like what we talk about today when we talk about the values.
1: That's fantastic. And I love that thread connecting teaching to entrepreneurship, too. James, I'd love to get your comments on resilience, because it's now been 12 years yeah. of thread up, And I think, you know, people think about startups as these sexy things, and few people realize that they're really marathons. So when you, you know, if you, if you endure as you have, it's been 12 years. Um, can you share any practices or tools that you've really treasured that you would want to pass on to the next generation of founders that have helped you stay resilient and engaged um, over the course of 12 years?
0: I mean, a few things. I mean, one is like um, uh, I think if you're working on a business that like you that has a mission and a vision and you think is making the world a better place, it's a lot easier to stick with it when it's hard. And, um, you know, when I talk to entrepreneurs, you know, over the years who are who are doing things that could be fine businesses, but, um, you know, they're, they're things that aren't necessarily like making the world a better place. You know, I, I always remind them, like, hey, it's going to get really hard at some point. Like, do you want to look back and be like, man, I spent five years building a Facebook game, right, and, you know, when, when, when that was a thing, right? Um, and, and so I always tell people, like, look, it does take 10, 10 plus years. And um, I was lucky enough back to education, the school that I worked at, Pacific Collegiate School, um, one of the don- big donors to that school was Reed Hastings, CEO of Netflix. And through, through the early years, Reed and I became friends and I remember talking to Reed one day um, and I said to him something that has seared into my brain, I was like, Hey Reed, this was like 2013 or 14. I was like, what do you think about this red box company? You know, the red box, like kiosks, mm-hmm. I was like, it seems like they've come out of nowhere, you know, dollar DVDs. Like, you know, this was what Netflix was really a DVD company. He's like, James, that company has been at it for over a decade. Right. That's the Coinstar guys. Like these guys have been working super hard for more than a decade. It's like this stuff takes a long time. And for whatever reason that like really stuck with me that like, um, this stuff takes a long time. And so, um, so I always like have Reed in the background when I'm like, as long as I'm working on something I care about, you know, he's been at Netflix since 97, you know, and so 25 years, right. Of passion and purpose. And, um, I think I think that's a good. Uh, it's a good way to think
1: about the world. And you know, on this idea of taking a long time, you. you I mean, obviously, on the face of it, it looks like ThredUp is this marketplace for used clothes, but uh, but deeper, it's actually this very complex logistics yes. and engineering organization. Um, and I'm curious if you, without the formal training in logistics or all the technology that's used, can you share? Because I think many founders or students will have imposter syndrome. They'll feel like they can't go into a market without being, you know, having formal training in that market. How did you learn to build the premier, one of the premier logistics organizations in the world without having a formal background in
0: that? Uh, I mean, yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit cliche, but right. It is all about the team that you build. Right. I mean, and so I think, you know, founders like myself, there are certain things that I'm really good at. Um, you know, I'm good at, in um, at the strategy piece and the storytelling, and I think I have some natural instincts around products, and markets, um, fundraising, um, despite you know my my failures the first twenty seven times. Um, but, I, but 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 uh, but so you know my co-founder Chris, um, you know he was a rocket scientist at Princeton. You know he was at Harvard Business School with me. He's the smartest guy I've ever met in my life. Um, he was really important, uh, you know, in the process um ollie uh, one of my other co-founders was a computer science major you know so those two guys were really critical and then and then yeah people don't talk enough about luck and like on the logistics piece we got lucky right and so i sort of share with you kind of the, the reed netflix um connection and so it was because i sort of knew reed that i was able to raise money um, from redpoint ventures a guy named tim haley um, who happens to sit on the board at netflix and um, so there was a lot of Netflix DNA floating around and, and Tim knew a guy, Andy Rendich, who joined my board. And Andy had a friend, John Boris, who worked at Netflix, who was, he said, is the best systems officer he's ever met. And I managed to convince John Boris to come and join ThredUP in 2012. And I was like, this is a logistics company. He was working for Elon Musk at SpaceX. Um, and, uh, and, you know, right moment, right time, a little bit of luck. And John was like, Shit, I don't want to keep commuting down to LA. Yeah, I'll work on this. Right. And uh and we we pulled it off. And um, in fact, John is now retiring uh, in a couple of weeks, spent nine years and he's retiring, you know, for good. And um, you know, so Robbie, a little bit of luck, really, um, I have to say.
1: Well, I, I think founders don't talk enough about oh, that, but I so think that that is so it's so much of it is yeah, it can be Gosh. timing and luck. Let me turn it over to the students now. So I'm gonna I'm um I'll, let, I'll kick it off with the first question. How important are ethics and sustainability to your company's mission? And what do you tell people to encourage others to start shopping secondhand? How do you steer them away from fast fashion and constant consumption?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's a core part of our DNA. So we, we really try and help people understand that, um, that every time they buy something used, they're like making a really good decision for the planet. You know, buying something used compared to buying something new saves 82% uh, of an item's carbon footprint, right? So 82% less carbon in a used item relative to a new item. And so I think what we try and do is we don't try and preach to people. What we try and do is pat them on the back for making good choices. And um, you know, people generally don't like to be preached to, but we all love to hear like, you know when we get, I remember the Nest reports, you'd be like, hey, you've used less energy than your neighbors you're like, awesome, right? I don't want to be browbeat that like, hey, you're the guy using the most energy on the street. And so I, I do think that like that positive encouragement is really important. You know, and I think on the fast fashion side, um, what we really try and uh, help people understand is that um, what people love about fast fashion is, is low prices and, and sort of individuality and sort of the uniqueness. And I think resale is a really good example where you can get those low prices Uh, You can get that individuality, but you can get it in a sustainable way. Um, And so that's how we try and thread that needle. That's great.
1: The next question is, how important is initial velocity following launch? How long should it take for a good idea to get those first 10,000 customers?
0: Um, Yeah, you know, and I don't know, probably the 10,000 customers, like, is that, that might be dated these days. You know, like in 2009, that seemed like a lot, you know, these days with, with social platforms, it's, it's maybe it's too low. Um, but but I think it's one of those areas where um, you should see like organic word of mouth early. Like it should, you know, there's lots of been written around like your product should be good enough. The experience should be good enough that people want to be like, Hey, have you used this thing? Do you know about this? And if people aren't willing to talk about it, uh, talk about it to their friends, share it with their colleagues. Then it's going to be an uphill battle. And I think you know, to give you the real raw example, like we've really cracked that on the supply side. As we've talked about, like we've only we've only sort of cracked it on the buyer side, right? There's lots of competition out there around where you can buy uh, buy clothing. And so I would say we, we our viral coefficient on the supply side is way higher, for example, than on the demand side. So you know it's not necessarily perfect.
1: That's great. Um, next question: How do you feel about your decision to go public? Ooh, did you have any major hesitations at the time? Has ThreadUp struggled with the loss of privacy with regards to having disclosed stock ownership, margins to competitors and customers, executive compensation, etc., caused by IPOing?
0: Um, I don't think we feel like um, we felt like it was the right time. You know, I think the market was was very receptive to the story that we were telling. You know, around resale and the category momentum and category growth. Um, you know, and sometimes I think you know the company is just at a, at the stage when it just feels right. You know, you have the systems in place, you have the data, um, and so we just felt like it was right. And I think um, the process of going public made us a much better company. I think the thing people don't talk enough about is just the, the rigor of that process um, is really powerful stuff. And so I actually think that we're a better company now that we're a public company. Um, and, um, and yeah, I think, I think it's great for us being public.
1: Next question. Um, did you always know that you wanted to do something with a socially positive mission or did you first pursue thread up because you believed in the idea of buying, selling secondhand?
0: I think I've always been a mission guy, you know, I think, um, you know, part of why I started off as a teacher, um, and, you know, teaching English and history to eighth graders is, you know, I think I always wanted to do something good in the world. And, you know, and I thought education, you know, was, was an incredibly, um, you know, powerful calling. So I do think somewhere in my life, it got burned into me that I wanted to do some good in the world. And so I think when I came up with the idea for thread up, in its early years, I saw this wonderful opportunity uh, to build a good business and also do good. And I think that sort of reflects you know, how I run the company today. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think I've always wanted to do something good.
1: Do you think that the public financial markets focus on quarterly earnings and near-term profits hinders companies that aim to tackle long-term problems, requiring more time and
0: research? oh i don't know if i have a about much of a a, much of an expert on that i mean i think you know great public companies uh you know take tesla take apple take amazon um, have figured out a way to invent the future uh while being public companies so um so no i don't think it necessarily hinders you know innovation um it does it does mean that that um these companies have um uh, have to have incredibly great stories to tell and, um, you know, they're run, run by incredible founders. So, um, so I think it can be, if you're a great founder and a great story, and you have a big, you have a big vision to tell, I think being public is, is there's no better platform, you know, uh, to get the capital you need, uh, to build the business you want to build. So,
1: and you, do you feel pressure though, from near-term quarterly results to, to steer strategic decisions?
0: No, I mean, you know, we only been public, you know, a few quarters, but I've I've been really helping investors understand sort of the long-term view and just being very consistent um, with our investments in the future and where we see the opportunity. And um, so, yeah, no, I think, um, like I said, I think being public has been really good for us. Um, And, you know, I think it's just important that you really communicate what you're trying to accomplish.
1: Next question is: um, What were the key aspects of adapting to COVID? How did you keep your customers engaged and comfortable with buying secondhand clothes when fears of viruses and transmission were so prevalent?
0: Yeah, great question. Um, yeah, I mean, I think in the first like couple weeks, you know, sort of March of twenty in the pandemic, there was a little bit of a, like a head scratcher of like nobody really was understood how the virus was being transmitted. I think mean, there was a lot of uh, a lot of confusion. Um, and so we definitely experienced that with our customers, but, but quickly, right, people realized that uh, the virus didn't, you know, get transmitted on, you know, cardboard boxes and it couldn't live long enough. And so I think once we had reliable data uh, around how it got transmitted, it was pretty easy to communicate um, to customers. But yeah, the first couple of weeks I was like, man, I don't know, you know, and, and then we sort of figured it out.
1: But did, it, did you also suffer from a drop in demand? Because I imagine the main reason why people are buying clothes is to show yes. off in social,
0: social no, settings. No doubt. And, yeah. And, we, and so we suffered, did you have to. Yeah. A drop in demand and then a real mix shift in what people are buying. Right. So instead of buying shoes and dresses for going out, right, they were buying loungewear and, and shorts. Um, we've never sold more shorts, you know, than we did in the first few months of the pandemic.
1: And were there any enduring lessons from that on staying agile that you learned from the. Covid um, experience that you'd want to share?
0: Yeah, I mean, we learned you know. I think we got sharper around you know, forecasting on merchandising and demand planning. But I also, you know, it was such a black swan event that uh, I we try not to draw too many lessons, you know, uh, um, from it because uh, I think you can scenario plan for for black swan events all day, um, but I think a lot of times it's a waste of time.
1: Next question: um, What has your experience been with staying patient through the process of reaching profitability?
0: Well, I think the way that we think about uh, profits is like, you know, we, we obviously want to build a profitable, you know, sustaining business over the long term, but we're really balancing, you know, growing into what we believe is a massive addressable market. And so the way that we, we really run the business and we communicate it to, um, you know, to, to investors and shareholders is, hey, we want to continue to grow, you know, uh, at a really strong rate and we want to continue to show leverage, you know, in the business. And um, so I think as long as we accomplish both of those things, it's pretty easy to see you know, where profitability comes over the, over the short to medium term. Um, so that's sort of how we, how we think about it. I think if we were in a market that was small and contracting, right, it might be a different story. But we're in a market that seems to get bigger every year.
1: Yep. Um, okay, next question is on gender. How does the gender of your customers impact your business choices? Does the gender of your target market impact how you make decisions with marketing or development? Yeah, we,
0: we only uh, sell to women, you know, primarily. I mean, we we, we do have some um, um, men who buy for their children or or, um, but yeah, we don't sell men's clothing, um, and because we don't believe the men's market is is as mature and as big, you know, in in secondhand as, as the women's market. And um, but I get asked about that all the time. You know, people want when do you a men's? When are you doing men's? When do you a men's? Um, But I've really tried to be rigorous around, let's stay focused on the women's market. Um, Because it is, it's a lot easier to communicate your marketing messages, um, even the colors on your website and how the products are positioned, right? it it, it is very much categorized for a female audience. Um, And so, yeah, we we feel like by constraining our market in that way, uh, we're able to better serve it.
1: And the founding team is all male?
0: It is, yeah. yeah.
1: And is that an issue?
0: um you know i think back to sort of the team approach right i think we've had to make sure that we bring in a diverse set of perspectives um to to make sure that like we're serving our our target customer you know correctly um but i don't think it's been a huge i don't think it's been a huge issue but i i don't have the counterfactual so maybe maybe it was business founded by women it would be 10 times the size
1: okay um, fair enough. Next question. <laughs> Next question is: Who would you say is your biggest demographic threat up? Um, any interesting insights on what group you initially targeted versus which group you ended up utilizing threat up? I know we've talked a little bit about this, but yeah. they specifically said millennials versus boomers.
0: Yeah, I mean, we 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 generally skew younger. You know, it's people, um, but they tend to be people in their twenties and thirties. Um, you know, I don't think we're we have quite as high penetration for for teens. Um, and, uh, you know, we do have some boomers, like, mean, one of the things that unites kind of the thrift community is it is a broad, you know, segment of the population. Um, but we're really focused on that probably 25 to 45, uh, female demographic shopping for themselves or shopping for their kids. Okay.
1: Um, next question, um, as you mentioned, finding the right product market fit can take several years. How do you know when it has been too long to find this fit? When, what keeps the founder convinced that it will, event, uh, will happen eventually? Is there any way that you can foresee or calculate that it will happen?
0: Uh, well, two, I think two things happen, which is you get enough positive data to kind of confirm that you're getting closer or you run out of money. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, uh, running out of money is a pretty clear indicator that, like, you haven't figured it out. And so, you know, the, 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 the old truism of, like, being the CEO is, like, you got to set the strategy hire the people and never run out of money.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's so true. You just need to keep cash in um, some, whatever way you can, you need to get cash. Cash is, cash is oxygen. Yeah. Um, um, next question is, does pivoting one too many times mean the
0: business is fundamentally flawed and should be f- shut down? Yeah, I, I think it gets back to the, yeah. you know, I think you can pivot lots of times until you find the right thing. You know, assuming uh, you have the cash as oxygen. And yeah. so, um, you know, I think, uh, I think there are lots of great businesses out there, you know, S- you know, Stuart Butterfield at Slack, you know, he built a business that was totally different. Um, you know, the guys at Instagram built bourbon. that was totally different. You know, if you had Kevin Sistram on here, he would tell you that was a terrible idea. We took a while to find a good idea. Um, so I don't think it's a number of pivots. Um, I think it's that you, you, you end up having to find something that, that really does work, uh, while you still have money in the bank.
1: Uh, and if you run out of money um, and you're just a founder with high conviction, you're like, I just want to be a, a founder. I want to start this business. Is there a moment when you would say, you know what, you should take a break and not continue this venture and, and do something else?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, everybody has personal circumstances that, that sort of change their ability to kind of, you know, to, to, to pursue the entrepreneurial endeavor. Um, but I've always found that like, like there's more capital chasing businesses than businesses chasing capital. Um, you know, I, I do believe the markets are pretty efficient, and there's lots of money out there looking for great entrepreneurs with great ideas. And so, if you have if you have a great idea, right, and you are a great entrepreneur, you will find the money. And so, um, and so sometimes you need to take a break, you know, to kind of regroup. Um, but I don't think that means that people should, you know, stop pursuing. Stop pursuing their passion to do something uh, entrepreneurial. Okay.
1: Um, next question's on luck. I'm going to ask this question, which is a word you used about the success in fundraising is luck. Can it be interpreted as the importance of network? Um, can can luck be interpreted as the importance of having that network? How how you build your network during fundraising? Is that what really luck means when we say luck?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's like um, you know, you're you're you're, you're constantly you know, when you're out fundraising, you're constantly looking for signals about, you know, who to meet next um, and, you know, or who might be helpful. Um, But in that process, right, um, the first, the pitch you give to your first investor is so different than the pitch you give to your 10th investor. So, you know, the fundraising process is a journey in and of itself. Um, And so you're constantly like meeting new people, refining, you know, what, what you think about and, and I think if you're, if, you know, if you're going to be a successful entrepreneur, you're going to need to build a network um, and that network's going to help, not just for fundraising, but for recruiting and partnerships and pipelines and and all kinds of stuff. Right. And so I think uh, I think it's really something that people who, who want to be in the entrepreneurial yeah. ecosystem need to pay attention to. Um, and uh, you know, I've always tried to be somebody who's, who's helpful and, and can, and helps, you know, that helps build my network and people that I trust and, and be valuable to other people. I mean, you know, Robbie, like doing this call, right. It's because, you know, the guys at Redpoint were wonderful to me and they were like, Hey, you, you know, and I was like, yes, I would love to do this thing for you. Right. And um, I think there's something that's really nice um, about putting yourself out there and helping others. And I think if you do that, I think the world works in really positive ways.
1: Yes. I've seen that. And so again, if you're looking for insights on how to network, I mean, I, I, I even hate to use that phrase, but the best connected people I know adopt James's philosophy where th- their attention is on helping the others around them and then um, things will naturally can, can fall into place. Um, I have time for probably one more question, James, and we really appreciate your time. Um, I'll ask, I'll exercise, I'm going gonna to exercise my prerogative and ask yeah, the yes. second one, which is based on your experience, do you have any further advice on how to address the chicken and egg problem in the early stages of a marketplace? Should founders focus first on attracting supply, demand, or both at the same time?
0: Um, yeah, it's a, there's um, there's a lot of uh, stuff written about this. So since we don't we only have two minutes, I'll you know the Cliff Notes version is: I think you have to figure out what the real long term constraint in the marketplace is going to be, and spend all your time solving that and so you know for example like airbnb you know their whole business is constrained by the number of hosts right the the hosts and supply team over there dwarfs everything else in the company right it's all about supply you know open table when they got started right it was all about restaurants how do i get our how do we get our software into the restaurants and so in any marketplace one side is going to be more constrained than the other and generally speaking this isn't always true but generally speaking supply is the constraint. And so if you, can, if you can crack supply or crack a new way to bring supply online in any market, um, chances are like you're going to have a, an opportunity to win. Um, and it doesn't mean that you'll win over the long term, but if you're going to start somewhere um, in marketplaces, I think supply is a good place to start. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series